This is Brother Michael A. Smith, a voice for Freemasonry, bringing to you the Short Talk Bulletin, published by the Masonic Service Association of North America every month since 1923. This, the Short Talk Bulletin podcast, is produced in cooperation with the MSA and is made possible with the generous support of a grant from the Grand Lodge AFNAM of Minnesota. This is Brother David Kahn's of United Lodge 8, Brunswick, Maine, presenting to you Volume 34, Number 10, October 1956. Masonic Enigma The Standard Dictionary defines enigma as follows. An obscure or ambiguous statement, the meaning of which must be guessed or discovered. In the charge at the close of the Master Mason degree, the initiate is instructed, the ancient landmarks of the order, entrusted in your care, you are carefully to preserve and never suffer them to be infringed or countenance a deviation from the established usages and customs of the fraternity. It is an established principle both in law and nature that ignorance of the law is no excuse. If, therefore, the master mason is never to suffer the landmarks of Freemasonry to be infringed, he must know what they are. No mason has yet been wise enough to set forth the landmarks of Freemasonry. Many have tried it, None has succeeded to the point where all other Freemasons agree. From the earliest beginnings of society, law has been a necessity. The early caveman was a law unto himself. While he roamed the hills and plains, if he met a fellow, his law was the law of might, the heaviest club, the greatest strength. One killed the other and took his possessions. When necessity drove cavemen into tribes, it was essential to have an agreement, a law, a rule that they did not kill each other, and that each was entitled to keep his own possessions without hindrance, whether that possession was a stone axe, a wife, a child, or a cooking pot. From such crude beginnings, law developed, and as an inevitable result, all human institutions devised their own laws, Freemasonry among them. Of the making of laws, there is no end. Like Freemasonry, lawmaking is a progressive science. New conditions demand new laws. New inventions require new controls. New ideas need new restrictions. Men of the 10th century required no securities and exchange commission or laws governing the buying and selling stocks on margin. George Washington never received a parking ticket or was arrested for speeding. During the war between the states, no one invoked the Fifth Amendment because of his membership in the Communist Party. Corporation law was known in Rome, but not to the 12 tribes. A few of the many varieties of law may be listed. Natural laws, those principles which activate natural phenomena such as weather, tides, winds, lightning, fire, earthquake, volcanoes, geysers, growth of tree, grain and flower, the four seasons, day and night, and an unnumbered and unnumerable number of other natural phenomena. Scientific laws, in addition to natural laws, which surround and control phenomena brought into being by man's use of, or interference with, nature. Thus, nature has no atomic or hydrogen bomb, produces no power by the burning of oil in a cylinder, sends no intelligent messages by radio wave, exhibits no television shows, runs no railroad trains, and propels no ships across the sea. Man does, and discovers some of the laws controlling such things. Morality hath its laws. They begin in the Decalogue for most Westerners and are expounded in pulpit and church, school and home, 
but no list of them has ever been made. What is moral or immoral changes with people, climate, and custom. No list seems likely to be made. The one-armed bandit is illegal in most of the United States, but legal in Nevada. Polygamy is legal in some tribes in Africa. Certain crude religions make it an act of grace to kill an infidel, and slavery is still legal in certain areas in the world. During the noble experiment, it was illegal and therefore immoral to transport a pint of whiskey in a motor car. The illicit still in the mountains of some parts of the South is still moral to many. Law is a part of nature, but no man knows all of nature's laws. Law is the foundation of science, but no scientist has written all the laws which control the activities of science, as opposed to those of nature. It is a law of nature that, under certain conditions of temperature and pressure, electricity in the form of tension in the clouds results in lightning. It is a law of science that the same force, brought into being by man revolving certain coils of wire in and around certain cores of iron, will light an electric lamp, produce x-rays, cook a meal, drive a train or a ship, produce heat and cold. Lightning is unpredictable because all the laws which govern it are not known. Electricity has been tamed, but we are doubtless in the infancy of its possible uses because science does not know all the laws which govern it. Freemasonry is often referred to as a beautiful system of morality which seems to predicate the fact that there are several, if not many, systems of morality, of which Freemasonry is one. The logician deems this nonsense. There is only one system of morality of which Freemasonry may be a phase, or within which it may operate. No one, not even the eminent divines, ministers, preachers, priests, and prophets of the world, has ever written all the laws of morality. The unwritten law is a part of law. No code of civil laws commands that a householder kill an intruder, a robber, a villain who enters his home for the purpose of raping his wife and stealing possessions. But no judge or jury will convict when a man kills the intruder in defense of his home, his family, his property, or himself. The unwritten law not stated in any code of law, is as well understood as the written law. There are laws of manners which, while to some extent set forth in books of etiquette, and which do govern the conduct of many civilized people, are no more reduced to an all-inclusive code than are the laws of morality. The Decalogue sets forth certain essentials of human conduct, but only a few. A man may set fire to his neighbor's house, salt his neighbor's fields, or dam up the stream which waters his neighbor's garden without offending the Ten Commandments. The laws of manners indicate that civilized man remove his hat when greeting a lady, but say nothing of the husband who reads a newspaper at the breakfast table. We remove our gloves before taking a friend by the hand, or apologize for keeping it on, but you will search the books of etiquette from cover to cover and find no prohibition which states that a man must retain or remove his shoes or neckties before entering a church or kissing his wife. Every lady and gentleman knows what good manners are, but none define them in toto. In the same way, Freemasons have a general consciousness that the landmarks are thus and such, and the ancient usages and customs such and thus, without listing or defining them in any complete form. Many Grand Lodges have stated that within their jurisdictions, 
such and such commandments and or prohibitions are, quote, landmarks, which is much like a lawmaking assembly saying that lightning which strikes a house and an apple which falls from the table, if it rolls off, do so as the result of laws. The same lawmaking body could then repeal the commandment or prohibition and say it was against the law for lightning to strike and that an apple must not fall to the ground if it rolls from a table. The repeal would have no effect. If repeal can have no effect, neither, logically, can the enactment have any effect. The enactment of a list of landmarks can indeed produce rules of conduct or activity, but cannot become landmarks by ukase of a lawmaking body, any more than said body can enact or repeal a law of nature or morality. Freemasonry began in a crude and simple form, developed through many years, became a fairly complete, well-defined and bounded system with the beginning of Grand Lodges, crossed the ocean, redeveloped in certain ways in this country and became what it is. Let him define it who can. Its governing laws stem back to the six old charges and 39 articles of Anderson's constitutions, but behind these are the landmarks and ancient usages and customs which initiates are charged to preserve, even if they are never told what they are. Certain more or less modern usages and customs have become so fixed in Masonic thinking as to have the force of landmarks, although they cannot be framed within the definition of landmarks. Thus, it is impossible to imagine a successful American Grand Lodge which imitated the Grand Orient of France, removing the Book of Law from the altars and admitting atheists to membership. Yet there was a time, and not so long ago, when there was no volume of sacred law on the altar or even an altar in a Masonic body to put it on. No Grand Lodge could successfully legislate that the ancient craft have only two or four or more degrees. It would immediately be without the pale of all other regular and legitimate Grand Lodges. Yet there was a time when, in all probability, Masonry had only one degree, and not since 1813 has it been legal to have more than three degrees within the frame of ancient craft masonry. There are certain landmarks agreed to by all, which no one questions, which do comply with the definition of a landmark. A law or custom so important that without it, Freemasonry would not be Freemasonry, but would be something else. No one will argue that it is not a landmark that Freemasonry makes Freemasons of men only. Organizations which admit women to membership are not Masonic. They may be allied to Masonry. Their members may be Masons, as in the Eastern Star. But Masonic, they are not. Male membership is universally agreed on as a landmark. Secrecy of ritual and ceremony is undoubtedly a landmark. Any Grand Lodge which permitted the conferring of degrees before other than Master Masons would not be a Masonic Grand Lodge. The legend of the Master Mason's degree may or may not be a landmark in point of fact, but it is so recognized universally it is impossible, for instance, to imagine a Master Mason degree built upon the story of Damon and Pythias, or Jason and the Golden Fleece, or King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. The Master Mason degree must tell the story of the Master Builder, and no other myth or legend could possibly take its place. Belief in a great or grand, architect, or artificer of the universe as a necessary thinking in any candidate for Freemasonry is a landmark. Freemasonry cannot tolerate the atheist. 
One pseudo-Masonic body tried it, and it is now not only unrecognized, but anathema to all regular Freemasonry. Undoubtedly, monotheism is a landmark. Indeed, belief in a great architect is incompatible with any pantheistic philosophy. A great architect presupposes no lesser architects. Belief in immortality is and must always be a personal, not a grand lodge matter. Definitions of immortality simply do not define. If belief in personal immortality is thought of as a landmark, then there must be many forsworn Freemasons, since many a good man and true thinks of his immortality as his children, or that the divine spark within him but joins with others after physical death in a great pool of immortality, exactly as he thinks of a drop of water still existing, although losing its identity as a drop, when, as rain, it falls in the ocean. Belief in some form of a hereafter may justly be considered a landmark. But when reading, for instance, such a list as Mackey's 25 or Kentucky's 54 landmarks, the Masonic student asks himself, who determined these as landmarks? Inevitably, he must answer, certain brethren. He has, therefore, the reason why so many such pronouncements cannot be landmarks. They are the ideas of men and not the contributions of time immemorial to the fraternity. The citizen who is in doubt about the law consults a lawyer. The lawyer may inform him or misinform him. The man who is doubtful about a point of moral law consults his minister or other ecclesiastical authority or some moral philosopher. He gets the best advice obtainable which may or may not be correct. The experimenter in the laboratory, who wonders whether a certain experiment will produce new facts or blow him up, will advise with his teacher, higher authority, greater scientist. He may or may not get correct information. He may or may not add to the sum of human knowledge or be blown higher than Gilderoy's kite as a result of that experiment he tries. The Freemason, uncertain as to the landmarks of the ancient usages and customs he is to support, will consult the best authorities he can find. He may or may not get adequate and intelligent information. All of us, in all these fields, just do the best we can. Anciently it was written, Thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in thine inheritance, which thou shalt inherit in the land of the Lord, thy God hath given thee. Deuteronomy 14, 4. That landmark might be a stone, a tree, a stream. In the course of time, it might disappear. But the boundary it marked did not disappear. It was the boundary, not the landmark, which was of importance. Freemasons differ widely as to the landmarks themselves. None disagree as to the boundaries which mark off Freemasonry from any other institution. Most men know morals and equity by training and instinct, though the law may escape them. Most Freemasons know Freemasonry, though the landmarks may be an enigma. It is thine inheritance which the landmarks define and that no enigma can take from the reverent and conforming brother. This has been the Short Talk Bulletin Podcast, produced in cooperation with the Masonic Service Association of North America and is made possible through a generous grant from the Grand Lodge AF&AM of Minnesota. 
who have been engaging and inspiring good men who believe in a supreme being to live according to the Masonic tenets of brotherly love, relief, and truth since 1853.